0: Thank you, Christine, for that prayer. Greetings to everybody this morning. And uh, let's get into our teaching for today. I was thinking about what we're working on, uh, where we've been. We've been talking about the God who is here, the God who lives, the God who is present with us. And last week, we thought about God's character as the righteous judge of all the earth. <clears throat> when I was uh, young, before I was 12, <clears throat> don't know just how early it started, about as early as I can remember, I had, uh, I had some very severe allergies, And I would get these attacks that would uh, leave me with such constricted breathing that I would feel panicked, because I just couldn't get enough air. It was one of the, uh, uh, probably the worst memory from growing up, was these attacks where there was just nothing to be done. And it would last for several days. Uh, Obviously, uh, it was hard on my parents to watch that. Uh, It was about that time when uh, they started doing more with allergies and and, uh, uh, treatment of it. So I got shots and that gradually helped and outgrew the whole thing when I was about 12 years old. But it was a hard time. When I would get these attacks, there was a, a medicine that the doctor prescribed. Uh, I don't know what it was officially called. We just called it wheeze medicine because <laughs> it was to treat the fact that I couldn't breathe and I would be wheezing with every breath. Uh, it, was, uh, it was absolutely hard stuff to take. Uh, you'd take a teaspoon of it and... Uh, and gag on it. It was so bad. We did everything we could to uh, modify the taste a little bit, whether it was sugar or orange juice or, or whatever. But it was terrible stuff. In, in the midst of taking it, you could, uh, you could sense that maybe the pain and distress of the allergies was not as bad as the medicine you were taking. I'm sure you've had situations similar to that, right? Well, I thought about that as we consider the topic that we're on right now, which is the judgment of God. Uh, the judgment of God is hard, which is why it tends to be avoided even by Christians. Uh, it is, <clears throat> the judgment of God is what the prophet Isaiah called God's strange work. it, it It seems like it doesn't fit with so much of the rest of what we know about God. But it's part of the scriptural message that we are given in Scripture and that we need to hear assuming that just as I took that wheeze medicine as bitter as it was, that there's something important here that we must know that God has given us to think about and reflect on that is ultimately for our good. So, we're working on that. We thought about it uh, last week. We noted last week that God's judgment in the Bible is both feared and celebrated. See there? There's the element of the bitter medicine that is good for you. So, it's feared, (laughs) There's a strange uh, title that is given to God in the book of Genesis. It's only mentioned once in Genesis, and indeed the entire Bible, where God is called the fear of Isaac. Isn't that a strange name? The fear of Isaac. The book of Hebrews says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that is God as the judge. It's a fearful thing, and Scripture points out just how fearful that is. But at the same time, it's celebrated. So we looked at Psalm 98 last week, where the psalmist says, let the rivers be glad and the mountains clap their hands because the Lord is coming to judge the world. And this is a message to be celebrated because God comes in his judgment to set the world to rights. And there's something in our heart that is supposed to respond to that and say, yes, (laughs) it's about time, even though personally that may have implications that are fearful. But this idea that it's the right thing for God to come And fix his world. That's the God who comes in judgment. But today we need to push this a little bit further. uh, A little bit harder perhaps. Uh, The message is even uh, like the medicine. More bitter, if I can say it. And it raises a question that many people have wrestled with. Even many Christians... And that's a question something like this, doesn't the message of God's love toward us in Jesus contradict this biblical theme of God's judgment? And that plays out in various ways. Some people throughout history have said the message of judgment is really a message of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a God who is angry, a God who judges, who punishes, but when we come to the New Testament, we get this other face of God revealed to us in Jesus that God is a God who loves, who loves the world, who says that he has sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this Wonderful theme of God's compassion and grace and mercy and pity. And for some people, then, you know, that, that negates this message of judgment. So they play the New Testament against the Old Testament, or <clears throat> in some traditions, uh, and, and this is very common today, even among evangelical Christians, the doctrine of God's judgment is just kind of ignored. You know, it's, it's one of those things that's just not talked about. It's, it's assumed that we should focus on love, and if we focus on God's love, that's really all that we need to say. But you remember our, our image from last week, the image of the, uh, the symphony orchestra, that, that to hear the composer, you have to hear all the instruments as they were designed by the composer. And if if one of the instruments simply goes silent, there's something lost to the music. And so it is with, with Scripture, and I think with this hard message of God's judgment, that if we just negate it or if we go silent on this, then we're not hearing the full story of Scripture, and we're not really... Dealing then with the God who is here. So let's think about this. And what I want to do is not try to look at the whole of the Bible on this theme, which is the theme of hell. Uh, We don't look much at the Old Testament anyway, because the Old Testament doesn't have much to say about hell. Come to the New Testament, it's much more prominent. And here's the striking thing. Do you know who talks most about hell in the Bible? It's very clearly Jesus. Jesus, who we rightly appeal to as the one who comes to us with the message of God's love, he is the one who, as he describes what God is like Talks about the judgment of God and he talks about hell more than anyone else. So, what I want to do this morning is just do a kind of quick run through of some of Jesus' teaching on this so that we uh, can put that into our understanding of who the God is that is here with us. So, let's take this description of God that Jesus gives. In Matthew 10, 28, he describes God as the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He says, don't fear the the ones who can only destroy the body. Fear the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. So we'll look at a number of texts. This is by no means all the texts we could look at in the teaching of Jesus. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. They sat down and collected the good fish in baskets but threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, "'Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels.'" So, a number of texts here that we want to think about. When you you hear from Jesus speaking this way, uh, it's strong medicine, isn't it? So let's ask this question, what is hell? There are a number of themes that we have in these texts. We could probably find a couple more, but I think these are the primary ones. These are, I'm going to say, pictures of hell. You say, is this literal description of what hell is like? Uh, In some ways, yes, but maybe in some ways, no. For example, in this uh, image, there is talk of... Fire. We read that. The fire, the eternal fire that Jesus talks about. Is that literal? Well, it may be, but I suspect it's probably metaphor, picture language. But metaphor, picture language, always points to a reality, right? To say it's metaphor doesn't mean there's nothing there. But this is a way of conceiving and getting some sense for the reality behind the picture. So, one of the words that Jesus uses for hell is the word Gehenna. That's in our Greek text of the New Testament, but it's really a transliteration of Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, in Hebrew it would be Gay Ben Hinnom. That is, Gay is valley, Ben is son, and Hinnom is a personal name. So it would be a reference to the valley of the son of Hinnom. We know where that is. Still exists today. It is the valley on the southwest side of the city of Jerusalem. And of course, it was there in Jesus' day. What was significant about that place? Well, in Second Kings we find that in that valley certain of the dissolute kings of Judah offered sacrifices to their gods. Not to Yahweh, but to pagan gods, and sometimes what they sacrificed was their own children. So it's a place of uh, terrible idolatry, great wickedness, and when the good king of Judah, Josiah, came along, He initiated a bunch of reforms and revival within the kingdom of Judah. And as part of that, he desecrated that supposedly holy site of paganism in the valley of the son of Hinnom in Gehenna. So what they did was they desecrated the site and in an effort to make sure it was never used for pagan worship again, they turned it into a trash heap. It was where they dumped the refuse from the city. And traditionally, we also believe that there were fires kept burning there continually to get rid of the refuse and to keep the rats down. So it's a, it's a pretty gloomy kind of picture, right? Right? Jesus says, do not fear the one who can, those who can kill the body, those who might persecute his disciples, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in the valley of Hinnom. In that place that all all you people who hear me, you know where that is and you know what goes on there. It's a trash heap. It's a dump. What is Jesus telling us? It seems that he's saying that there is, at the end of human history, an evaluation, a judgment that God makes when all people, small and great, stand before him. And in that judgment, there are people who are consigned to the cosmic junk heap of the universe. Now think about the tragedy of this. These are people who, like you and me, have been designed by a loving creator to live meaningful and purposeful lives that actually share in what God is doing. And we've talked about that before, right? In in Genesis chapter 1, created in the image of God. Created to partner with God in bringing God's peace, his shalom, to all of creation. That's the job that never got finished. That's the job that got sidetracked, that God is reinvigorating with the coming of his kingdom through Jesus. And you and I are meant to participate in that, to partner with God. But at the end, Jesus says, be afraid of meeting the God who can consign you to the cosmic junk heap of all of history. There are people who are made in God's image, designed to do significant things with and for God, for whom God in all his great power and mercy and love and all the rest has to say there is nothing here of value that can be used, nothing that can be redeemed. Nothing that can even be recycled out of the junk heap. Because in a sense, that's who all of us are, right? We're we're getting recycled through Jesus. But there are going to be people who at the end, there's no recycling, there's no value. Jesus says, fear the one who will make that judgment. But there's another theme that that he talks about here too. When he talks to the, the the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, who has asked for Jesus to come and heal his servant. Remember, and Jesus says, Well, I, I don't need to go, your servant's healed. And and uh, and then he says, because he's so surprised at the faith of this Roman centurion, an outsider, right? He said, you know. In the end, many are going to come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the great feast of the kingdom of God. There's going to be many outsiders like this Roman centurion that come, but there's going to be insiders, sons of the kingdom. He's referring here especially to the Jewish leaders who rejected him. There are going to be insiders who are cast out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, what is the darkness here symbolizing? Well, again, I think you can go back to the beginning of the biblical story. You remember how creation starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless, and empty, and what? Darkness was over the face of the deep. And in the midst of that darkness, God speaks. And he says, let there be light. And with the coming of light comes the beginning of life in the universe. And God creates all manners of things. And and ultimately, as as the, the pinnacle of that creation, He creates human beings in His image and likeness. But the darkness represents chaos because the darkness was on the face of the deep. And the sea often represents turbulence and And resistance to God's purposes in Scripture. And now, at the end, there are people who are going to be cast into darkness, chaos, isolation, and the end point of isolation is death. Terrible picture. Sometimes people in their bravado will say something like, well, yeah, I may be going to hell, but at least I'll be with all my friends. Tim Keller says correctly, there are no friends in hell. Because hell is about darkness it's about isolation. It's about loneliness and about a perpetual dying. And then, whoops, going the wrong way here. And there's that beautiful text in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul says the God who said let light shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so there's this, this contrast that goes on all through scripture between darkness and light and in the end there are people who choose darkness and God allows them to choose it. The third theme that we should consider here, Jesus talks a number of times about hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, what, what's the image there? Weeping is certainly an image of regret, of sorrow. And the gnashing of teeth, I think, is probably resentment. Resentment frustration. You get that picture? And anger. Anger at who or what? Well, probably everything but the self. Anger at God, anger at other people. I mean, look at angry people today. What are they angry at? versely everything but themselves i guess some people are angry at themselves but frequently it's all displaced it's it's the other people or even god who have brought them to their circumstances hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth a place of deep regret jesus tells a story in luke chapter 16 about a rich man who ends up in hell and he's filled with regrets He wishes he were not there. He wishes he could get some relief from the pain. He wants Abraham to send the beggar Lazarus to his five brothers so that they will not end up in the terrible place he is at. But here's the interesting thing. Regret is not the same as repentance, is it? There are many people who have regrets because they find themselves in circumstances that are uncomfortable, uncomfortable, painful, unpleasant, but that doesn't necessarily lead them to repentance. Because repentance says, I am sorry for the kind of person I am and I desire to change. The rich man in hell never expresses repentance. I actually think this is an important point to work with, because there are many objections to the teaching about hell in our day which focus on the idea that that it would be unfair for God to consign anyone to a place of endless judgment. For the very reason that our lives are finite and the amount of sin that we can create even in an extended life is a finite amount of sin. So the the argument is, how can you justify an infinite judgment for finite sin? I find uh, some of of, uh, C.S. Lewis's thoughts in this regard helpful. Where Lewis suggests, he's not the only one, but he suggests... (coughs) that we're really not talking about a finite amount of sin here because the people who end up in hell are people who simply continue on further and further down this road of rebellion against God. They may have regrets like the rich man in Jesus' parable, but they don't repent. Think about that. Think about Think about your worst day. I don't mean the day when the worst thing you can think happened to you, but think about your worst day, when you you are behaving a way that you don't even like. And think about that behavior on your part. Going on forever, and forever and forever resisting God saying no to God's kingdom pursuing your own way Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and our first parents who say we will be gods for ourselves. We will decide how life is to run. We will pursue our own ends and endeavors. Think about that attitude which you can get in touch with in your own heart and think about where that takes you if it continues on endlessly. Is that not a fearful thing? And hear Jesus' words. Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Well then, let's ask this question. Who ends up in hell? Jesus said in one of these passages we just read it's the wicked the angels come and they separate the righteous from the wicked and the wicked are cast into hell it's like fishermen going out on the lake lake of galilee i suppose that's where his disciples were fishermen They haul up the nets, they've got a great catch, and they sit down on the shoreline, and they separate the good fish from the trash fish. They throw out the trash fish. Jesus says, that's how it's going to be at the end. The angels will do the gathering, and the fish will be sorted, and the wicked will be disposed of. Now, uh, we're inclined to say perhaps, "Whoo, okay, I think I know a few wicked people. And I've heard about wicked people in history. I could give you some of the names. Yeah, there's wicked people. They end up in hell. Okay, I can deal with that. Well, yes, the wicked end up in hell. But the testimony of Scripture is that there is wickedness in all of us, right? And that's where the medicine gets hard to swallow. Because then we have to add to this idea. Jesus doesn't just talk about the wicked. He talks also about those who reject God's kingdom. You know, when he's responding to the Roman centurion, he says, Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, listen to that, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. Who are the sons of the kingdom? The Jewish people. And he's probably focusing especially on the the religious leaders in Judaism. The people who studied the Bible, the people who offered sacrifices, the people who were so concerned not to dishonor God's name that they wouldn't even pronounce his name, the people who were scrupulous in their obedience, but they rejected God's kingdom. God's kingdom is that sphere where the will of God is done, right? And so they were doing a lot of things that look good to many people, but they weren't doing the will of God. They were doing their own will. Again, a a quote from C.S. Lewis that is just so uh, thought-provoking, I think. Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. You get what he's saying there? The kingdom of God is about people who say, thy will be done. About people who are trying to learn to be like Jesus. Jesus who faced the cross and as much as he did not want to go through with that, he said to his father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's the essence of the kingdom. That God's will is done even when it's inconvenient, even when it's painful for us. So Lewis says there's two kinds of people, those who say thy will be done and those To whom god says in the end thy will be done that's what adam and eve said let our will be done not god's will be done and that's the history of the human race dave dunbar says i want dave's will to be done and that runs frequently into contact into conflict with god's will and so i have to make a choice you have to make a choice And those who end up in hell are those who insist on their own will being done. And then we can say one thing further. Those who end up in hell are those who reject God's king. They reject God's kingdom, but they reject specifically God's king. They reject the Messiah. The Bible says... Speaking of Jesus, he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him to those he gave the authority to become children of God even to those who believe on his name. So so here we are. We're trying to listen to the symphony that is the good news about God's kingdom. And we're trying to listen to all the different instruments that play to make up that music. And one of the themes is the theme of God's judgment. And and so then we, we begin to struggle because we say, well, I thought... I thought the good news about the kingdom of God was the good news that God loves us and comes to save us in spite of our sins. Can't can't we just focus on that? But you see, we really do need to have all the instruments in the orchestra playing. And... And we can't mute one instrument, because if we mute one instrument, then we don't, we don't really hear the message. All the instruments need to play, of course, they need to play in balance, so we can overdo one aspect of another, but we need to keep them in balance. And so to the modern move, even the modern move in the evangelical church, which I think is to mute the message of God's judgment we need to come back and listen to the full score of Scripture. It's interesting that John, the Apostle John, who is sometimes called the Apostle of Love, and makes such extraordinary statements in his gospel account of Jesus about God's love, is the same John who talks in the same verses about God's judgment. Apparently, he understands that that the two go together and that you only understand the one when you see it in light of the other. For example, we'll finish with this. These well-known verses. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. Then verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. John has no difficulty, this man who was perhaps the closest of all the disciples to Jesus during his earthly life, who heard the message. John has no difficulty putting together this theme of the overwhelming love of God who even gives His Son for our salvation. With the theme that this God is also the God who will judge the world. Who loves humanity so much that he has his own son bear judgments on Calvary. He loves so much. But he is also the God who says he stands in the midst of Israel with the plumb line measure. And when the wall is crooked, he destroys the wall. Jesus says, don't worry about the one who might kill your body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Let's pray. God, this is such a solemn theme. Such finality here. That it's possible that any one of us could go through life and come to the end and miss the fundamental purpose of all of life. What tragedy. What loss. What regret. And Lord, it's in the light of, of that possibility that we thank you today for your grace to us in Jesus. The one who stood in our place, who experienced the judgment that was due to us, and he did it out of his deep love and his awareness of the terrible danger that lay before the entire human race. How good is your plan, God? How deep is your mercy? How extraordinary your love and compassion. We celebrate you today as the one who is our God and our Father in Jesus. And we look forward to the day of your appearing when you have set all the world to rights. And we pray as you, as Jesus taught us to pray, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Hope to see you next week. And our ushers will help you to dismiss from the back to the front.